Hi, I'm Cardiff Garcia, and this is The New Bazaar. Coming up on today's show... It's this sort of imaginative process of projection and longing that I analogize to humor in the way it works, which is to say you can try to be funny, you can try to be glamorous, but whether you succeed depends on the audience's reaction. Virginia Postrel on the economics and the power of glamour. Virginia Postrel has long been one of my favorite writers, and the main thing I'd say about her work is that I always learn something new on almost every single page she writes, something that makes me stop and reflect on how little I knew about a topic that I thought I understood. And that is certainly the case with her 2013 book, The Power of Glamour, which is a book I've wanted to talk to her about for a very long time, and it's also the topic of today's chat. Glamour is a misunderstood concept. A lot of people associate it with glossy pictures of movie stars and celebrities in these very ritzy settings. Or they confuse glamour with other concepts like charisma or dazzle. But glamour is something a little different. It's mysterious. It conceals. It especially conceals hardships or complications. So it is an illusion and it is deceptive, sometimes in problematic ways. But... Whether we're talking about a glamorous object or a glamorous person, glamour also provides a canvas on which people can project their own desires, their own longings onto that object or person. And so when you find something glamorous, then that something is also revealing what you yourself yearn for, what's absent in your own life. Everything I just said is a little bit abstract, and in a second, you'll hear more about the definition of glamour from Virginia, and she'll include a lot of examples, including some, hopefully some, that apply in your own life. But I just wanted to give you that sense of what glamour was, because once I understood it, I really never saw the world quite the same way again. And what I'm hoping is that by the time you finish listening to this chat, you won't either. Here it is. Virginia Postrel, welcome to The New Bazaar. Thanks. Great to be with you. Before we even talk about the power of glamour, I have a question about your approach to economics and your approach to writing about economics. (laughs) There's a really amusing anecdote at the end of your more recent book, The Fabric of Civilization, where you write about how all these people keep asking you, why write a whole book about the history and evolution of textiles? And you could give them a simple answer that would be wrong, which is that you grew up in a textile uh, city, that you have a lot of members of your family who worked in textiles, but that actually the truth is that you just get a, a very strong sense of wonder from the history of textiles. And that is in a lot of your writing, actually. <laughs> you use the language of economics sometimes in phrases like productivity growth and market-based competition and whatnot. But you approach it from a very different angle than somebody who is an economist or an economics commentator, uh, how they would approach it. And so I'm just kind of curious to know if there is like something going on in the back of your head when you write about economic themes where you don't just want to hit them, you know, the way, you know, traditional economics writers would would go at them. You come at them from a very different place. Yeah, well, economics is part of my intellectual infrastructure. It is part of how I understand the world. So that's one piece of it. And that's why even when I'm not explicitly using economic tools in a way that a non-economist would recognize, it's often lurking there in the background. So that's one piece of it. But the other piece is that I think the commercial world, the world of figuring out what people want and need, figuring out how to make it, figuring out how to make it in a way that creates rather than destroys value, all of those things are really cool. (laughs) I mean, the process, the, the examples of those things are really cool. It's not so much that the theoretical idea is cool, but it's that the things that people do in the same way that I think it's great when people create art or when they make scientific discoveries. I just think it's a part of human creativity And I think it's really interesting. Yeah. And The Power of Glamour is also a book that includes a lot of economics, although 
In some ways, it's more a book about psychology or even sociology and about the ways that we are influenced by the things we see in ways that we don't always recognize. But those influences do inform the decisions we make. And economics, if you go back to the traditional definition of how do we decide what to do with the finite resources we have, that involves you know, an infinite variety of possible decisions that we can make and then the decisions that we do make. And the things that influence those decisions are all around us in ways that we just don't always see, don't always recognize. And so I took that approach to reading The Power of Glamour or more recently rereading it because I've, I've read the book a couple of times now. And it seems like that is also a big theme in your work. Yeah, I think of The Power of Glamour as somewhat a departure from my usual themes. I got sort of sucked into being interested in how glamour works. I think of it more as being about rhetoric and persuasion, but not so much with words as with images and ideas. But you can also think of it as part of uh, a sort of program of research, I guess you could call it, about where economic value comes from. So if you start with my first book, The Future and Its Enemies, that's very much about sort of traditional ideas of progress through trial and error learning, competition and feedback, many of which are economic in nature or technological in nature with economic implications. The Substance of Style, which came out in 2003, is about the idea that aesthetics, the look and feel of people, places, and things, is a source of genuine economic value. That is, it's not just about manipulation or being fooled or being stupid because you like something that's pretty or that speaks to who you are, that signals something about your identity. And there I'm unpacking sort of what is it that people value about, you know, being in a restaurant that has an aesthetic identity or having a hotel room that provides more than just a place to sleep but thinks about the the interior design, all those sorts of things. Why do you care what your computer looks like? And then the power of glamour comes along. And as I say, I got sort of sucked into thinking about glamour pretty much by accident. And there it's a little more subtle because there you're talking about not appealing, say, to who people are or the problems they have in reality in their everyday life in a functional way or even necessarily to their idea of beauty, but to who they want to be, the kind of life they want to have. And it's this sort of imaginative process of projection and longing that I analogize to humor in the way it works, which is to say, you can try to be funny, you can try to be glamorous, but whether you succeed depends on the audience's reaction. And certainly glamour is used throughout the commercial world to try. It's, it's not the only thing, but it's one of the th tools that marketers use to try to get people to buy things or to go to movies or to redo their kitchens <laughs> or whatever it may be. And there is an element of illusion to glamour. That is, not that it necessarily fools you about what you want. That part is true, and you may even be able to achieve it, uh, but it always contains an element of illusion because it hides the details, it hides the disadvantages, it hides the costs, all those trade-offs that economists talk about. Economics is very unglamorous. <laughs> it hides the flaws and the effort and all of those sorts of things. And, you know, the word glamour originally meant a literal magic spell that made things look better than they actually were. So glamour always has that little bit of magic and illusion to it. But the value it creates is often felt to be genuine by the people who enjoy glamour. Glamour is one of those things that is a tool that can be used for good or ill. Uh, it can be a positive force in your life, helping you to find a career you like or a city you want to live in or even like a kitchen you like, uh, but it can also be a negative, especially if you don't think about what's being edited out. Let's talk about the definition of glamour. And you already started down that path a little bit when you described glamour as something that is a little bit distant, that represents 
longing. Uh, it can include great beauty. It can be, for example, a still picture of a person or just an object. And if there's a person in these pictures, very rarely will the person actually be looking directly at the camera. There's a sort of distant look in their eye as well. So it could be a beautiful still photograph of a movie star or somebody else looking off into the distance at some grand vista. And the crucial thing about it and this is a really interesting part of your book, is that the people, the audience looking at a picture like this will be projecting their own sort of dreams and their own unbounded imaginations onto the object of glamour itself rather than having those dreams be defined by the glamorous object or the glamorous person. Like, that seems to me like one of the key distinctions between glamour and something that's not glamorous, right? Right. So you can think about this in terms of traditional sort of fashion magazine covers. And there's sort of two models. One is that you put a person on the cover who looks friendly and is smiling and looks like uh, she could be your best friend and your you know sort of your cool friend that you'd like to hang out with. And I don't know, somebody like maybe Sandra Bullock would be an example of, of that. <laughs> right. um, she's getting a little up in age, but so am I. The <laughs> alternative is more the sort of high fashion look where you have somebody who's not making eye contact with you, who's wearing an outfit you would never be able to wear because you don't have the right body. And even if you had the right body, you don't have the right occasion because it's sort of like a red carpet gown. And they're perhaps looking off into a distance and it conjures up this ideal life. And it invites you to project onto that person. Not that you're going to hang out with them, but you imagine sort of being them or being in their place. And it makes you have the feeling of projection and longing about a different, better life in different, better circumstances. I just used a fashion example, and that's dangerous because one of the things I learned when the power of glamour came out is that a lot of people think that glamour is a synonym for fashion, which I didn't even realize because when I think of glamour, I think about the movies, <laughs> uh, yeah. but uh, fashion is only one manifestation. There are glamorous travel destinations. There are glamorous cities. There are glamorous jobs. Whatever it is that you in your life feel kind of is missing and you long for in the right way can be portrayed as glamorous. And as I said earlier, just like humor, whether it works or not, depends on your reaction. So if something is glamorous, people feel this sense of projection and longing. But then what I do in the book, which I think of as the title should have been something like Decoding Glamour or Glamour Decoded, is I figure out how does that work and what are the elements. And so one element is there needs to be the promise of escape and transformation. Escape to a Escape you know, into a better life. Into a better a transformed life. Transformed life, yeah. right. And so this is a metaphorical escape. Uh, transformation can be metaphorical or psychological. But it also explains why is fashion so often glamorous? Because you imagine putting that on and being transformed. Why is travel so often glamorous? Because it is a form of escape, that sort of thing. And then the other two in ingredients, one I've talked about a little bit already, is grace. And that's the central illusion of glamour. Uh, yeah, that's no where, effort at all. No, no effort. You know, effortless. It's just, it just comes to you costless, super easy, right? Yeah. You know, no flaws, no itches, no sand in your bikini, you know, no, no lost luggage, uh, None of those things that happen in the real world. Yeah, um, I love that. And also, if I, if I can just interject real quick, you make this point that glamour is better suited to a still picture because then you can imagine a very graceful stride, very graceful movement. Whereas in a moving picture, you actually see the way the person walks or runs and it might be a little off. There might be something that doesn't look perfectly easy and perfectly natural. Uh, and so a still picture can sort of let you imagine this 
perfectly coiffed person walking around with like no problem, almost gliding through the world. Right, right. And one of the other things that I contrast glamour to is romance. And it's sort of like glamour is the still photo and romance is the narrative. So in romance, which I don't mean boy meets girl kind of romance necessarily, although that can be one form, but, you know, it could be Lord of the Rings. It could be the romance of entrepreneurship. You edit back in some of the difficulties. In fact, there's often a lot of struggle before the ultimate triumph. But what it never is is boring. Mm -hmm. So you never show, you know, accounting. You never, you never show uh, guys being bored before the, you know, in between battles, which is a huge part of actually being a soldier. Uh, you know, you you don't show that kind of negative. Although you might show pain, you might show struggle to make the ultimate triumph greater. So that's romance, which is the narrative. Glamour is sort of the still picture that invites yeah. your projection. Romance can include hardship. Glamour yes, it, does not. Glamour yes, edits all that. Exactly. Out, right? There's no okay. hard. Hardship and glamour. There's hardship and romance, but there's nothing boring. Right. Uh, you know, it's all the all the emotions are heightened. Yeah. And uh, then what's the final thing? And after then the Grace final thing component? is mystery. And mystery, which is a word that is often associated with glamour, you often hear the word mystery used with glamour, and it has two functions. One is a little bit of mystery invites projection. Uh, You want to know more. You're intrigued. And you fill in the blanks with your own desires. And then the other aspect of mystery is it helps hide things. You don't have to see everything, and that's good. And I always say no one is glamorous to themselves. Whatever person you think is the most glamorous person in the world, they are not glamorous to themselves because they know everything bad about themselves. They know all their aches and pains. They know their flaws, whether they admit them or not. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I'd love to give an example here of some of these themes that you just touched on. In your book, there's this picture of Angelina Jolie on a canoe in a Cambodian swamp, and it's just her, and it's a very serene setting and it's a really beautiful picture. It's from the photographer Annie Leibovitz. And what you write, and I'm going to quote the book directly, is this, quote, Against the yearning for speed, it presents an image of perfect stillness. Against the frenzy of conspicuous consumption, it posits graceful simplicity. Against urban excitement, it offers a verdant landscape. Against instant communication, it promises splendid isolation, unquote. And then you sort of go on to explain what the what's being hidden in a photograph like this. And so then you write, quote, like other forms of glamour, the ad is evocative make believe. It shows none of the hardships and limitations of rural poverty and conceals the technologies, conveniences and wealth that make Jolie's globe trotting life possible. It even hides a basic truth about contemporary journeys. The affluent foreigners who trek to swamps in Cambodia don't usually bring Louis Vuitton, unquote, because it was an ad for Louis Vuitton. This was really funny to me because you can imagine all of the photograph photography apparatus behind right. the camera that's like framing Angelina Jolie in this Cambodian swamp. In the picture, she has her arms and her legs exposed. So, you know, if she stays there too long, she's going to get bitten by mosquitoes. You wouldn't want to really stay on a canoe in a Cambodian swamp for very long anyways. (laughs) You just get bored. At some point, you'd need to get something to eat. Like, the realities of life don't intrude on this image. But when you look at it, you're right. You imagine yourself thinking, God, you know, I'm so busy today. Uh, I'm so harried all the time. I'd love to just, like, sit there and chill in this beautifully calm setting. Yeah, and what I do there is not only analyze the glamour of that photo, which I think is really glamorous, but also situated in time and, and, and culture, which is to say this is what is glamorous to a certain strand of people today in the 21st century to affluent people, but who's going to buy Louis Vuitton? It's very different from what a glamorous image would have been in 1950 to a similar audience. They would have looked at that and they would have seen the Pacific Theater in World War II, or they would have seen the mosquitoes, or they would have wondered why she was wearing her gardening clothes and not dressed up and looking 
well-to-do because they had different aspirations and different things that they were sort of escaping from. It was an escape from poverty, from war, from the Depression, upward mobility, as opposed to escape from feeling harried and frenzied and and, uh, too much on 24-7. Yeah, I love this idea that what makes something glamorous has to change over time because the circumstances of our lives change all the time. And also that what's glamorous to one person won't be glamorous to someone else because the circumstances, again, matter quite a lot. And what I thought of was that, you know, if you'd showed somebody, you know, a picture like that, I don't know, 100 or 200 years ago, in addition to just being confused about what it was that they were being shown, it would have, it would have just been less interesting because people did live in more rural environments back then. It was easy to find serene settings. What was glamorous maybe a couple hundred years ago would have been a sort of modern city life, what we think of now as a modern city life. I don't mean like, you know, factory smoke and things like that, but, you know, <laughs> it like an exciting setting in a city where you are, in fact, maybe harried all the time and you are busy and you have this kind of interesting set of choices for what to do with your jobs and to choose your friends and that kind of thing, that the urban environment would have been what was glamorous back then. But of course, now the world has had a lot of urbanization. And so moving people back out, you know, going back out to the countryside for a little while is what would seem glamorous now. These things really do change depending on how the world itself changes. Yes, you see that in a lot of the Golden Age Hollywood movies from the 20s and 30s. Because even though, obviously, in the 1920s and 30s, there were big cities, but a lot of the audience was living in rural areas or in small towns. And for them, the portrayal of a very idealized Manhattan life or Paris life, uh, those penthouses and stuff, uh, would have seemed really exciting. And the same would have been true for the typical person who was, in fact, living in, say, Brooklyn, because it would be the lives of the rich. So that a lot of those early as I say, golden age movies, the movies that made the the Hollywood studio system famous, were about the lives, the exciting lives of rich people in urban settings, because that hit a lot of glamorous buttons. That That is another definition of, of glamour that's in your book, which is a certain sense of fragility, that once you actually get the glamorous object, um, Contact with reality, with the object in real life, can often completely annihilate what you previously found glamorous about it, at least if you're not careful. Maybe sometimes it really does deliver, but it's something to be mindful of because fragility is a part of, of what makes something glamorous. And and I, it doesn't have to be negative. Uh, to use an example from my own life, which is not in the book, but I've written about it elsewhere, I had the idea of my ideal job. When I was in college, I read a book about New York intellectuals and the life of being a Think Magazine editor. And I thought, wow, that would be really great. All these dinner parties where people are having these serious conversations. Never mind. I'm terrible at dinner parties. (laughs) I mean, I'm terrible at giving them. I like to go to them. Okay. But But in the glamorous version of yourself, you're awesome at it. Yeah. Um, And I I don't like New York, or at least I didn't like it back then, especially. Uh, But I had this idea of the glamorous job. And then uh, because of my particular political bent at that time, I thought the perfect job would be the editor of Reason magazine. And lo and behold, I didn't ever expect to get this job, but lo and behold, in 1989, I became the editor of Reason magazine. And it was a great job, and I really enjoyed it. But it was still a job. (laughs) It had a lot of negative aspects to it, as well as even more positive aspects to it. And I think that's how glamour works in a positive way. That is, it can point you in a in a good direction. But sooner or later, if if it points you in that direction, you act on it and you achieve kind of your dreams, reality will intrude. And as I say, it can be still a very positive experience, but your dream job is still your job. And every job has its negatives. Otherwise, they wouldn't need to pay you. 
Yeah, I, I like to tell people this about podcasting, which is what I do. And I got this question a lot, especially when I was when I was working at NPR. But I still get this question from time to time because it seems like it's perfect. Just talk about interesting stuff for a small amount of time each day or each week. And that's really it. And I got a kick out of it one time because when I was at NPR, I was doing a daily show that ran for 10 minutes each day. And my co-host uh, was Stacey Vanek-Smith, who was on the show with me. And this was, to that point, easily the hardest I had ever worked. And one of Stacy's friends went to her and said, so your podcast is 10 minutes a day. What do you and Cardiff do with the rest of your day? <laughs> <laughs> it's like, yeah. oh, yeah. my God. Like, it, it's it's a ton of work that you don't see. And even in, like, the interview that you and I are, are having right now, before, just to set it up, there was a lot of scheduling involved and things of that nature. It was making sure that the studio space was available. There was, of course, the background part of it, which is, like, reading your books, which I love doing, but I also have to do it with an eye towards like what would make for some interesting topics to talk about. It's not like just sitting back and relaxing and absorbing it that way. And then after you and I talk, right, Amy Keene, our executive producer, and I are going to like do a content edit, which takes like a full day. And then later we'll mix it up and then we'll go back and forth with the sound engineer to get the final version of it ready. And then we have to fill out the website and so forth. There's all this stuff that goes into it. And I will say... The glory of it is what's happening right now, is the ability to talk to somebody about awesome ideas, somebody that I admire, whose work I really respect. It's awesome. It does make it all worth it. But it's only like a 60 to 90 minute part of the week. Yeah. All the other time goes into getting the show out. And nobody sees it. All they see at the tail end of it is this. So anyways, my point is, like, I think even something like podcasts can in some sense be a glamour object. And so can any kind of work that from the outside seems great. Well, if you don't talk to the people who actually do it, it might not be it might not be what you think it is, right? Right, right. By the way, I don't want any of this to come across like I'm complaining well, about it. Like, no, I, I mean what it, we're right? talking about is when glamour works, when it's a yes. positive, uh, but it still hides things. There are also times when glamour is a negative and can take you down a destructive path or even take whole societies down a destructive path. Uh, but it can be a positive. It's just that there's always something left out. Yeah. I want to turn now to talking about glamorous people uh, and specifically how glamorous people differ from charismatic people. And I want to quote you again. This is an article that you wrote about Barack Obama in 2011 when some of the shine of his 2008 campaign had worn off because he was now doing the hard work of governing at this point, and he was having a a tough time of it then. Um, This was language that I think did make it into your book, but you wrote it actually before the book came out. So um, here's what you write, quote, Glamour is a beautiful illusion. The word glamour originally meant a literal magic spell that makes the ideal seem effortlessly attainable. Glamour hides difficulty and distractions, creating a false and enticing sense of grace. We see the dance, not the rehearsals. The beach resort, not the luggage and jet lag. There are no bills on the kitchen counter, no freckles on the pale skin star, no sacrifices in the promise of change. Unquote. And as you applied it to politicians, uh, you drew this really interesting contrast between glamour, which is great for selling something. It's great for campaigning. It's especially great for projecting this mysterious kind of aura where people can think, well, wow, this is like a Rorschach test. They can think whatever they want about the candidate, which which will make them vote for that candidate uh, versus charisma, which is actually more useful in leadership for actually getting people to go along with what you're doing. So let's start there. Can you kind of give us some of those distinctions between glamour, which we've spent some time defining, versus charisma in people. Right. So glamour is something that arises in the reaction of an audience to something. In this case, a person or even a political poster, (laughs) which was a big deal uh, for Barack Obama in 2008. 
it's pretty unusual in politics uh, for politicians because usually, especially at the national level, because usually by the time to be glamorous, you to mean, be glamorous, because yeah. usually by then they're very well known. There are exceptions. Obama was an exception. Uh, John Kennedy was an exception. Um, but more typically is the charismatic leader. Somebody like Bill Clinton is the example I use in the book, who has this personal quality that the charisma belongs to the person. It's part of their personality somehow. It's built into them. And that personal quality draws people to them, makes them want to follow that person. And if you see a charismatic person that you really intensely disagree with, it can be terrifying because you see all these people flocking to them. But it it makes people want to follow. And it's traditionally, its original meaning was sort of a spiritual quality. It's associated with religious leaders. It is a quality of generals, of some kinds of organizational leaders, not your typical CEO, but sometimes they're, you know, somebody like Elon Musk, I think, has charisma, although he also has glamour. He's not oh, in the book, interesting. But, but he's he's an interesting example. And so if you're governing, it's much better to be charismatic. It helps you get elected, too, because people want to enlist in your cause. But they don't have this thing where they've projected all their hopes and dreams onto you, and those hopes and dreams may be contradictory. One of the things that was so striking about Obama in 2008 was that people would see him say something, and they would love him so much that they would assume he was lying if they disagreed with him. And usually lying (laughs) in a politician is not considered a good thing. Uh, they but, thought that he was taking a position. They thought he was taking uh, a position just to get elected. Yeah, right. exactly. Actually, he's he's one of he's, but he agrees with me in in reality. In reality, and that's right. kind of and not to mention, of course, all the difficulties of getting legislation through or you know, making tough foreign policy decisions or all the things you have to do when you're president. You have to make trade offs of the kind that don't exist in the uh, in the glamorous picture, but. Charisma is this personal quality. And one thing that I talk about is how when the person dies, the charisma dies because it's just as much a part of them as their eye color or uh, their laugh. And so you have historical figures who we can tell by the behavior of the people around them were very charismatic. Joan of Arc, Teddy Roosevelt, uh, even Princess Diana. Princess Diana went from glamorous to charismatic, and then when she died, she became glamorous again. Okay. Uh, and, and so sometimes when they die, they become glamorous figures. They become these sort of idealized figures who can take on any kind of meaning, depending on the audience. So JFK, he was... He supported my foreign policy. No, he supported my completely contradictory foreign policy. <laughs> Never mind what the... Uh, what the record shows. It's just he held my hopes and dreams. And so therefore, whatever I believed in, he must have believed in too. Yeah. And people people have always been fascinated, I think, by the youthful death of famous figures. Yes. You know, and you, you can you can think about pop culture, you can think about James Dean yeah. and figures like that who really have become they almost become visual icons. Right. And so you see a picture of them and they're sort of eternally youthful. Eternally youthful. And they're f- frozen in that image in everybody's minds. And so they're sort of glamorous forever, as you said. Whereas we actually don't know what would have happened to James Dean if he'd gotten older, yeah. right? We right. don't know if he if he would have I mean, you know, you know, gone look, to middle age, lost his hair. Look like, at you know Marlon I mean? like, Brando. You know, sure. He was kind of glamorous in that same period and— you know, fine. His acting career continued, but the Marlon Brando of, you know, Apocalypse Now is not Aging's a glamorous a thing. Figure. We all get older, yeah. of course. Right. Yeah. yeah. Right. We don't always look like we're 25 forever. You right. Know? Right. Absolutely. Yeah. No, that's that's fascinating. And I want to I want to now just kind of summarize some of those differences. Uh, I sort of wrote down some of the things uh, that you've already mentioned here. So with glamour, there's a certain sense of mystery about the person. There's a kind of distant look in their eye usually 
visually when when you see a picture of them. It's great for still photography, great for sales, great for campaigning. It's partly based on scarcity, like something that is really hard to get to achieve. And so you yearn for it. You project yourself getting it when you see a glamorous object. And then with charisma, it's like there's more transparency almost. It's more revealing of your personality. Um, There's more, I think, the person being able to look you in the eye and convince you of their vision as opposed to you projecting your vision onto them. Uh, There's more space for like big in-person live performances and colorful personalities, people who really kind of take up the space to use another metaphor, if that makes sense. And it can be better in a way for governing and for leadership. And so you mentioned a few examples already, but you also drew some interesting uh, contrast in the book. Uh, For example, you gave one that I thought was fascinating of like Che Guevara being the more like glamorous figure from Cuban history. He, of course, uh, is is the one who has his face all over everybody's T-shirts, people who don't actually know if I can slide in some quick thinking here, like some, you know, how destructive uh, and horrible a figure he really was versus Fidel Castro, also a horrible and destructive figure, but who gave these three hour long speeches and kind of captivated everybody. And so that's another way of drawing, you know, Obama versus Bill Clinton, the charismatic you give. And we're going to talk more about basketball in just a second, because I've been wanting to ask you about this for a while. But you give the example of Michael Jordan as the more distant figure, the glamorous figure, Magic Johnson as the very charismatic figure. And so these are just some of the examples you give. But uh, I think those are pretty instructive about the, the differences between the two. Did, did I leave sort of anything out in, in terms yeah, of those I think, distinctions? I think that's that's a really good way of making the distinctions. And of course, when you're talking about real life human beings, uh, as opposed to imaginative characters, there's usually some blurring around the edges. Uh, there were certainly people who found Bill Clinton glamorous. There were people who found Barack Obama charismatic. charismatic. Uh, In fact, he had to be at least somewhat charismatic or he couldn't have succeeded. You you can't get elected president without at least a certain amount of charisma. Yes. Uh, Yes. The uh, the only president I can remember who didn't have any charisma was Gerald Ford. And look how he, (laughs) you know, how he got (laughs) to be president. He he his greatest aspiration in life was to be speaker of the house. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, yeah, that makes sense. Um, I want to now, if you don't mind, ask you about Michael Jordan versus LeBron James, a different figure. Can I ask, do, do you watch basketball at all uh, other than for as research for your, no. for your work? To the degree that I watch any sports, I watch okay. basketball. I great. guess I would That's say that. That's a great place to start. <laughs> I do live in L.A. Anyway, so. also. So oh, OK. That's... Excellent. Yeah. Yeah. So my sort of thinking on this goes as follows. There is a debate in basketball circles about who's the greatest of all time. Right, and very right. often the two are Michael Jordan versus LeBron yeah. James. But ever since I read your book, I sort of think of them as a standoff between, you know, the most glamorous figure in the history of basketball versus one of the more charismatic figures in the history of basketball in LeBron James, right? So MJ, the glamour basketball player, LeBron James, the charismatic. And I sort of started going through the details of the two. Michael Jordan had, he had the shoes. He was really good in commercials. There was the dunking logo. A lot of times you'd see pictures of Michael Jordan where a lot of the background would be sort of edited out you know, so it'd be yeah. just in him, the book. I use the know, famous blue dunk photo. Yeah, oh. the blue dunk photo, where you just see him soaring through the air. It's an astonishing picture. But if he were to ever actually fully reveal himself on social media, for example, or in the ways that LeBron James does, I think you'd see what most of the reporting about him has revealed him to be, which is just a very unpleasant person. Or as one of his profilers <laughs> called him, he can be, quote, a breathtaking asshole, unquote. And it just seems to me like that era where there was less sort of transparency or fewer options for transparency in the media sort of suited Michael Jordan in the same way that the current era quite well suits LeBron James, who's quite who's, who's very different from Michael Jordan in the following sense. You know, LeBron James has 
a show on HBO that he hosts. He's good with reporters in postgame press conferences, and he sometimes dazzles people with, like, his basketball memory of specific plays and all the ways they carried out. We're like, he can do it from memory where most of us would have to just look at yeah. Although I guarantee you it, anyone you know. at that level, I'm sure Michael Jordan yes. could do that too. Uh, yeah, you know. Absolutely. But the point is that LeBron James, the charismatic, actually does it. He's open. He's more revealing yeah. of himself. Whereas, like, I can't imagine Michael Jordan being on social media, clapping back <laughs> at his haters on Twitter the way that Kevin Durant Durant, for example, does quite often. And Kevin Durant might well be the single best player in the game right now. And so anyways, there's a quote about Michael Jordan from your book that I want to read very quickly as well. And uh, this is you quoting a sports writer named Phil Taylor. He writes that Michael Jordan, quote, uh, his refusal to lay himself open helped him maintain a bit of mystery and with it a certain cash in a culture that cycles through celebrity athletes in a heartbeat like Dennis Rodman, Terrell Owens, Jordan abides still with the modicum of cool, even as he pitches products as decidedly unhip as Hanes underwear, unquote. I was, that was such a great example of glamour as it worked in sports in Michael Jordan's era. And so my question is, is there a deeper lesson here about the idea that back then there were more scarce options for learning about a figure like Michael Jordan, which provided it provided a good opportunity for glamour versus now where it seems like maybe the balance is tipped towards charisma because there's all these options for being transparent. So if you are a charismatic figure like LeBron James, it suits you better than the 80s and 90s when Jordan was playing. I think that's true to some extent, but I want to talk about social media in, in a minute. But sure. you know, but I did contrast him to Magic Johnson, and weren't exact contemporaries. But Magic Johnson was this super charismatic LA figure. The big smile became a very successful sort of businessman and and a civic leader. That's long before social media. <laughs> yes, know? that's true. And so you can certainly have these charismatic figures in a world of limited uh, media because they just punch through. One thing that is striking about LeBron in terms of charisma is how other players follow him, how he you know, he builds these teams. He's and he bosses around. I mean, he runs the Lakers basically. Uh, <laughs> you know, which is maybe not yeah, it worked until it didn't. Didn't work this not year. Not altogether say. <laughs> good. Um, uh, I I wonder, and I'm just putting this out there, whether somebody like Steph Curry is a little bit on the glamorous side, especially back when he was seemingly doing everything so effortlessly. Just as I say, I, yeah, I I, I'm, not, I'm not going to go to. I'm not going to debate that to the death. <laughs> it's, it's a great. It's a great and interesting insight, and partly also because Steph Curry is closer to like a normal person's right. height. Like he's short out there. Like I can almost imagine myself being like, well, if I were, you know, if I were, if I were as talented and as good at basketball as Steph Curry, maybe I could have made it in the NBA, right? That kind of thing. Obviously, that's ludicrous. I mean, glamour sure. involves the illusion, but you can sort of like see how that might work in his favor when it comes to being a glamorous figure, right? Do, do you think it's harder to be glamorous now if you are an athlete or a major figure, in part because there is a little bit more of an expectation that you would be transparent? And if you're not... You get labeled as like reserved, withdrawn, and these things can be totally fine, but they carry a kind of negative connotation, at least to the public or to people's fans and and, and that kind of thing. Well, what do you think so about that idea? The weird thing that has happened, and it's really happened since I wrote the book. It's not in the book, but it by the time the book came out, because there's a year between when you file and when the book comes out, it was a question people all asked me. So okay. before, when I was writing the book, the question people would say is, how can celebrities be glamorous these days? It's not like the 30s. Uh, you know, people want to know everything about people. And I write in the book about how, like, Kate Blanchett is an exception to that. Um, but after the book came out, people started asking a different question about social media, which was, hmm, it seems like we're all creating glamorous versions of our lives on social media. 
And I think, well, it's not true of everyone, uh, that is something that has become really common, especially through Instagram, even Facebook, maybe not TikTok because <laughs> it's more <laughs> playful, uh, but but Instagram people curate a glamorous version of their lives. And I sometimes think that when they look back at that, say, five years later, they will go, oh, my God, my life was so much better five years ago. Forgetting that five years ago, they were looking at everybody else's Instagram and saying, oh, my God, everybody else's life is great and my life is terrible (laughs) because uh, they're aware of everything that's bad about their life because we're not glamorous to ourselves, but everybody's putting out these curated lives. And I think some of that applies to well-known people as well. It is true that they are more out there, but we still don't know everything. We don't know what goes on behind closed doors. We don't know how exactly they're selecting those images. And there are plenty of people who, while they might not meet the very traditional mid-20th century idea of glamour, are still quite glamorous figures. I mean, somebody like Beyonce is very glamorous. And even her marriage is glamorous. And even then, of course, whenever there's glamour, there's people trying to puncture glamour. I want to talk about glamour and the movies now. It seems like the height of glamour used to be somebody walking the red carpet at the Oscars or maybe at a movie premiere, you know, somebody who you would see flanked by 30 or 40 photographers, you know, behind a rope line and and in a very beautiful, you know, tuxedo or a dress or whatever they were wearing, you know, walking into uh, the theater. And at the Academy Awards recently, there was the slap. But also the big movie stars don't really show up to it anymore unless they themselves are nominated. The comedians were all telling like these incredibly horny jokes, if that's the way to describe it, right? Whatever it was, and it was entertaining, I have to admit, uh, it didn't feel like a glamorous event in the way that you would think of the Oscars in their heyday would be a hugely glamorous event. And I'm just kind of wondering if there's something else going on that has to do with the evolution of the film industry that might also be paralleled by other things happening in the economy with digitization, with things like streaming, with the rise of TikTok and other ways of doing things on video, YouTube as well, that are competing with the movies now. And so I guess I'm wondering if there's been a kind of flattening effect there where if glamour is based on a certain amount of scarcity because that is the thing that like you really yearn for. Great. But now there are all these different channels that appeal to so many different people. And so maybe there's just more variety of things that are glamorous. Something is glamorous to me. Maybe I see my favorite person from who's a just a YouTube star, but I find them very glamorous, but you might still find movie stars glamorous and so forth. And so we're just less aware of what other people find glamorous or if Glamour has itself maybe been a little bit diluted by the fact that we live in such an era of visual abundance and video abundance and other kinds of abundance as well. Uh, What do you think? Well, I think vis-a-vis the Oscars, okay, there are two things that are traditionally glamorous about the Oscars. One is the red carpet, the arrivals, the, the outfits, the attention by the photographers, and the other is winning an Oscar. And I always say winning an Oscar is glamorous because what does it represent? It represents your peers saying you're great. And that's something a lot of people would like. You've got the best podcast in America. Here's your uh, podcasting award. Every, everybody yeah. wants that that <laughs> yearning for recognition and respect uh, is a huge driver of many kinds of glamour. And I talk in the book about how that same yearning can can manifest itself in completely wildly different ways. Um, yearning to be special, to be recognized as. But the other thing that's key, aside from what you've mentioned, is that there has to be a kind of identification. So you have to project yourself into, in this case, that person or into that image of that person. 
What many people who try to figure out what's gone wrong with the Oscars have pointed out is that the awards are going to people that the mass audience has never heard of for movies they've never seen. And so that inevitably limits the glamour of the occasion because people don't project themselves into those people because they don't know anything about them or they don't represent anything to them. And as you say, it could be they might find a YouTube star glamorous or uh, maybe if maybe they find the Grammys more glamorous, not because the Grammys are any great shake, but because the musicians are people. Yeah, they're that, music fans. They're yeah. music fans and they they identify with those musicians or they can project themselves into that kind of, of recognition and that identity more easily. So the other thing I have to say is that I have looked at probably thousands of red carpet photos. And <laughs> what I have discovered is that if you are just looking at the photos, not the idea of the red carpet, the only glamorous photos come from two places, Khan and the Met Ball, the Met Gala. And the reason is that those things take place at night. And so you have the red carpet and the flashing cameras against a background of darkness. Whereas because nobody believes, nobody on the East Coast believes that West Coast time is like real, uh, the Oscars <laughs> take place at like you know, the red carpet is like two or three in the afternoon and bright sunlight. And there's only going to the mystery thing. There's only so glamorous you can be. As I say, the idea of the red carpet may be glamorous, but the photos aren't. It's very different from the old pre-TV kind of Hollywood premiere searchlights and, and, uh, photographers with flashing bulbs, all of that sort of thing. So that that's an element of it, too, just the aesthetic aspect. Uh, that's funny. In other words, that uh, there is there's a picture you might see of two movie stars wearing gorgeous outfits or whatever, but in the background, there's somebody slamming a rum and coke by the bar or whatever. <laughs> <So> <laughs> yeah, well, just, actually, there's a limit to how glamorous that can I have be. A, right? I have a thing on Pinterest of unglamorous photos from the red carpet. And no basically, way. basically what they are are photos, which if you look at enough red carpet photos, you can find where you see the publicist with the giant super big handbag that has all the junk in it, who's kind of schlubby and wearing black. And th that's the support staff that's getting edited out of the typical red carpet photo and, and, and out of the idea of the red carpet. Oh, what a great idea. I'm definitely going to check that out <laughs> after, uh, after we chat. Um, I want to also ask about uh, what I guess you could call the vehicles of glamour. So, beautiful, glossy magazines, movies themselves, uh, other ways that we sometimes receive images that are glamorous. And I was thinking about this because the business model for a lot of these things, you know, just isn't great right now. You know, like <laughs> you glossy magazines are, are kind of going away. This also has to do with digitization, um, but it, it exists in other places as well. You know, you and I are on this kind of chatty podcast right now, which earlier I said might come across as glamorous, but it's very different in nature to, for example, the way very carefully edited, scripted radio was produced, you know, two right. or three decades ago. And so here it's more a kind of venue for, I guess what you might call charisma, but like personality, personality, right. revelation, people giving of themselves, that sort of thing. It feels and more candid. It feels more candid, more intimate. And so this seems to be happen happening across a lot of different kinds of media. And I'm wondering if you think that's going to have some kind of an effect on I don't know, the kinds of glamour that we perceive or if it's just going to reduce um, the channels through which glamour can, can find us or through which we can find glamour. Well, I think that glamour, like everything else in our media landscape, has fragmented, uh, which means that people find their glamorous thing, which isn't necessarily a mass shared glamorous thing. Um, 
I do think that the rise of Instagram has made glamour an everyday occurrence. Maybe they think about how they're curating it, but certainly they experience it a lot. Another kind of glamour that's been <laughs> pushed through digitization is real estate glamour. <laughs> oh, yeah. All these people scrolling through Zillow, scrolling through Redfin, uh, looking at their dream kitchens, uh, as well as the various remodeling sites or all of that stuff. Real estate glamour is a huge factor. And I don't think it's an accident, by the way, and I've written about this in the Washington Post, that that uh, Donald Trump came out of the real estate and hotel industries, which are industries that are very much about creating glamour and curating glamour. He's more charismatic than he is glamorous, but he is glamorous to some people, and especially in 2016 was uh, because of that background. And so there's this constant reinvention of what people find glamorous, how they want to escape. And by the way, we have been focusing entirely on the U.S., and that's fine. It's what you and I know best. But what is glamorous to you know, someone living in Shanghai or someone living in New Delhi or someone living in Nairobi or out in the countryside somewhere may be, one, very different from what we would find glamorous or our friends would find glamorous, and two, possibly more traditional. Yeah, I love a lot of those points. The point about fragmentation, um, the point that glamour perhaps is now available more readily in dimensions where it wasn't in the past, precisely because of digitization, where it might have eroded it in in some parts of our lives. But now you can find glamour in things like real estate or in, you know, sports beyond just, you know, people playing on the field or on the court. Now you can find it, you know, in the day-to-day lives of athletes. And now you can find it in all these other areas. And so it's fragmented. And, of course, the point that, like, people in other places that don't share our particular backgrounds are also going to find a lot of glamour in things where we just hadn't maybe even thought to look. The point about fragmentation, uh, do you largely think that that's a good thing? Is, is, this, uh, is this something that we can attach even a sort of an economic or a value judgment of some kind to it? Like, what do you make of that trend? Well, at this point, I would say I think it's neutral. It has good parts and bad parts. Back in the 90s, I wrote an article about what later became called the long tail. And it was, I saw it as entirely positive. It was like now on the internet, and this was pretty early on, uh, it was for Forbes ASAP, which was a tech magazine. Uh, now on the internet, people can find other people who share whatever is weird about them. And that could be an unusual disease, or it could be a strange little hobby. I didn't say this, but it could be some sexual fetish. But it's also the case that it could be a love of conspiracy theories or or really vicious political views. And so we've seen that manifested in every kind of possible dimension many of which are positive, many of which are neutral, and many of which are negative. And and that's not just about glamour. That's about the sort of fragmentation of the media landscape in general. You wrote a recent column for Bloomberg in which you looked at some of the reported measures of happiness um, comparing different countries by their happiness. And one of the points you made is that the way this gets measured is by the distance, the gap between what people have, so reality, versus what they want, so their projected imagination for for what their lives could be. And one of the points you also make is that, you know, the U.S. tends not to score super highly on these measures. And you argue that that could be okay, that that's a good thing, that that just signals that the U.S. is a country of strivers, people who are a little bit dissatisfied with their lives, but that doesn't necessarily mean that their lives are, at least in objective terms, horrible. It just means 
that they really want you know, a better life that they can envision, they can imagine a better life for themselves. And what I, what it made me think of was that countries that do have a big gap of this kind, countries of strivers, essentially, could also be good settings for glamorous objects because glamour, of course, is meant to signify that there is a longing, that there's a yearning, that there is this imagination, or as you put it, that people want transformation. But I'm, I'm kind of curious to know if, if that connection was floating in your head as you yeah. as you wrote the piece. Well, that connection was not floating in my head as I wrote the piece because it was actually inspired by something that Tocqueville wrote that I had taught in a class. Uh, but I think it's correct. And in The Power of Glamour, I have a couple of chapters of history once we get through all the theory stuff. And these are the chapters that people actually like the best, uh, but they only make sense if you've read the other stuff. And one of the things I say is before the rise of commercial cities, and that takes place in different times in different parts of the world, there were basically only three kinds of glamour. Glamour existed. This is a controversial view, but I believe glamour existed. But it took three forms. If you're a man... You could imagine being a heroic warrior. If you're a woman, you could imagine being a beautiful seductress type. And if you were either, you could imagine essentially being a saint, uh, religious glamour, oneness with God. And that was it. And these are all very high stakes. When you start to have commercial cities, you start to get low-stakes glamour. The old stuff doesn't go away, but in fact, it takes new forms, like you have aviators being glamorous, flying aces in World War I, that sort of thing. But you start to have people projecting themselves into, if I had that pair of shoes, my life would be perfect, or uh, if, I, if I had that house, my life would be perfect. Uh, if I could go on that vacation, much lower stakes kind of glamour. So I think that that's one way of thinking of it. And I do think that a society that gives people uh, broader horizons, which may be conveyed through glamour, where they can imagine a different, better life and different, better circumstances, are going to score lower on these happiness surveys that come out every March. Yeah. The uh, illusions of glamour can be, they can be deceptive, they can even be destructive in some ways. But you also write that they can be aspirational, they can be useful. And you mentioned sort of the idea of the American dream, and here's what you write, quote, every unironic evocation of the American dream is an exercise in glamour and, however illusory the dream may sometimes be, the country is better off for it, unquote. Illusions can be powerful. They can, in some senses, even be self-fulfilling, both in grand and in smaller ways. And you can think of sort of you know, obvious day-to-day examples if, if you have a spouse or a romantic partner and they drive you absolutely nuts, but you have this sort of illusion that you are the perfect couple, then it might actually be helpful. That illusion might be helpful in getting past the day-to-day banalities and annoyances and frustrations. Uh, it can exist on that big level of, of like, you know, I live in this country full of strivers. The American dream is real. Even though if you look at economic statistics, that might itself be an illusion. But if it's an aspirational illusion, it can still help your own life potentially. I'd love to just get your thoughts on this idea of the illusions of glamour and how they can be both bad. Yes, of course, illusions, deception can be bad, but also good in some ways. Well, it it can be good in your personal life of can put you on a road to something that, while maybe not as fabulous as you imagined, is nonetheless satisfying and good, uh, whether that's your marriage or your job or the city you live in, that sort of thing. The other thing, and what I was really getting at, I think, in that quote, is that it can be a social good. That is, having this somewhat illusory idea of bettering yourself, the possibility of bettering yourself, leads people to do things that are positive 
for the broader society. And some of those are, you know, starting companies or working hard, sort of the kinds of things we think of as the American dream that is fairly material. But some of them may be the idea of saving the world is a very glamorous idea. What does that mean, saving the world or even change? Uh, But you can also get, I think it does manifest itself in various social causes, political activism, some of which has positive results and some of which has negative results. But but that sort of ferment, the idea of a better possible future, whether it's for you personally or for the broader society or the broader world, I think on the whole is positive. But I, I always love this passage, which is mentioned in the book from Adam Smith, The Theory of Moral Sentiments, where he talks about the son of a poor man whom heaven in his anger has visited with ambition. And he keeps picturing, he he thinks he could have this better life if he had servants and he didn't have to walk and he could have a carriage and have a fancy house and all of these things. And so to get this, he strives really hard all his life. And then when he has achieved all these things, he realized oh, I was doing all these things so I could have a tranquil life and I could have had a tranquil life if I hadn't been so ambitious. I could have had it way back when. And Smith's point is it's this continual striving that leads to social progress. So he sort of simultaneously makes fun of this guy who has this glamorous vision of being rich and says it's absolutely crucial to the society and to economic advancement of everyone. And my last question, Virginia, this has been such a great chat, is just to ask if if you could share some of your own personal favorite glamorous objects or <laughs> or even or even glamorous people that you really deeply admire. Um so one I don't know if it's a glamorous object or an object about glamour, but I have this Ed Ruscher print that has a sort of an abstracted sea, water, and it says sea of desire. Because Ruscher, if people know his work, he often combines sort of graphics and words with uh, images. And I think it's a very glamorous picture because, and and I'm not sure how he intends it. I think he might intend it ironically, but it works both ways. <laughs> uh, he may be saying that, you know, danger, 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 you're likely to drown in the sea of desire, but it also creates that sense of projection and longing. And a lot of pop art, I was just watching the Andy Warhol diaries, uh, a lot of pop art has that double-edged kind of aspect to it where it's simultaneously doing glamour and making fun of glamour. Virginia Postrel, thanks so much. What a, what a great chat this has been. Thank you very much. Thanks for your careful reading. And that's it for today's show. You can find a link to Virginia's website in the show notes for this episode. And there you'll find more links to all of her books, including The Power of Glamour and the more recently published The Fabric of Civilization. They're all really great. The New Bazaar is a production of Bizarre Audio from me and the person who represents a truly dazzling combination of glamour and charisma and dozens of other virtues besides executive producer Amy Keene. Adrian Lilly is our sound engineer, and our music is by Scott Lane and DJ Harrison of Subfloor Studio. Please follow or subscribe to The New Bazaar on your app of choice. And if you like today's show, please leave us a review or tell a friend. And if you want to get in touch, I'm on Twitter as at Cardiff Garcia, or you can email us at hello at bizarreaudio.com. And we'll see you next week. <laughs>